Welcome once again to Whispers in the Darkness, the paranormal podcast from the Out There Paranormal Group. Whispering for you on this episode, we have myself, Nigel. And myself, Juliet. So, Nigel, what excitement do we have planned for this episode? Well, Jules, everyone loves a ghostly tale, and we just love to share a story or two. But where do we go for this episode? Well, that's the thing, Nigel, because we have so many classic ghost stories in Norfolk, from the coast in the east to the fens in the west, north to the wash and south to the pine forests on the Suffolk border. We have scoured our collection of local paranormal publications to discover what delights we could share with you all. One location looms large over all the others. As you head towards this place, you are greeted by signs that say, Welcome to Norwich, a fine city. They're not lying. Norwich is a city steeped in history. Bustling streets full of shoppers, a fabulous cathedral and imposing castle. It truly lives up to the description on the signs. If you search hard, though, you can find its hidden underside. Salubrious tales of murder and mystery. And of course, we would just love to share a few with you. Okay, so where to go first on our spooky little trip around this fine city? Where are we going, Nigel? Well, Jules, there's one place with more than a few stories attached to it. So our first stop-off point, I think, should be Tombland. Tombland? Oh, yes. Okay. Now, without a doubt, Tombland is certainly the most haunted area of Norwich. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, the name itself just sends shivers down your spine, raising thoughts of mass graves and long-lost souls, desperately crying out in the darkness, searching for their place of eternal rest. But actually, the name itself doesn't mean a land of tombs, as you would think. It's derived from two old English words meaning open ground or empty space. And it was indeed the location of the original Norwich Saxon marketplace many years ago. During these times, Norwich Market was the hub of commercial activity in town life. Bustling with busy and noisy stalls, full of local produce such as vegetables, meat and bread. But the market also sold many items transported to the city by merchant ships which were unloaded on the south side of the River Wensum. Interesting. Now, these ships contained many luxury items, such as pottery from the East Midlands, millstones, swords and wine from the Rhineland, furs from Russia, walrus ivory from Scandinavia, and fine quality wooden cloth from Flanders, all found amongst the stalls on the market. You wouldn't think it, would you? You wouldn't think it, no, when you look at that list. 
But the Normans, who arrived in England in 1066, had their own magnificent plans for the open space of tombland. The first Bishop of Norwich, Herbert de Losinga, had this grand vision for tombland, so the decision was made to move the market to its current location where it can still be found today. Once the market had been relocated, they busily set to work on the open space creating a huge building site, which was destined to be the home of the beautiful Romanesque Cathedral and its associated priory. Work started in 1096 and it took 49 years to complete. In the process of building the cathedral, a small Saxon settlement and two churches were destroyed to make room. The remnants of the former graveyard of one of these, St Michael's Church, has recently been rediscovered in Tombland, throwing further intrigue into the melting pot of haunted tales that we have been told for hundreds of years. Now we often hear tales of ghostly hauntings, tales of long-lost souls searching for fragments of their past, and Tombland has stood in the shadow of the magnificent Norwich Cathedral for almost 900 years. It is said that it is almost impossible to move from one side of Tombland to the other without hearing about a haunted tale or two. So, Nigel, now that we've dipped our toes into the history of Tombland itself, I suggest we take a walk along those well-trodden stone paths and slowly open that large, grandiose wooden door and take a peek into some of the stories about Norwich Cathedral itself. The cathedral today oozes architectural magnificence and historical importance, but it isn't simply for bored school children and tea-seeking anoraks clutching their maps in search of a historic artefact or two. Of course, something else may well linger within the walls and grounds of this holy place. So, Nige, should we go and find out? I think that's a really, really good idea. Okay. It's getting dark across the cathedral grounds dotted about a little pools of light cast by the ornate lamps. The cathedral itself soars magnificently above you, the spire disappearing into the night sky. Movement catches your eye, and you stare into the darkened gaps between the pools of light. Nige, wait! Is that a figure moving over there? What, just there? What, that thing that looks yeah. like an area of mist? What is that? It's drifting nearer. You can see, you can see. Look, it's a woman surrounded by a cloud that's hiding her feet. Oh, she's drifting into the darkness again. Look at her, she's just slowly fading away into nothing. Okay, Nige. Oh, I'm not sure about this. I think we need to know more about it. So, who is this strange lady? And what is her story? Okay, I think I've got a good idea. I'll tell you what, Jules, let's just take a little jaunt back in time to the 13th century. Things are not going so well in Tombland. The city people have been at odds with the cathedral monks for many years, for many different reasons, though mostly about rights and boundaries and tax, I do believe. Mm, yes, I've heard that there have been a series of fights and running skirmishes between the cathedral workers and the young men of the city. Was that right? That is indeed. Yeah, I heard that a number of citizens were even killed by the monks. 
The monks argued that as men of God, they answered to their own justice system and did not abide by the city laws. Hmm, okay, religious men, huh? Their own laws, okay. Oh, opposite the cathedral stands St George's Church and it was built as an alternative venue for worship, I believe, and used by the city folk. Oh, that's right. The problem is, you see, the Priory men desecrate the church on a number yeah. of occasions and feelings are running really high. And in August 1272, they came to a head. There'd been a number of quarrels and fights. Word was going round, as you heard, there was going to be a major fight at the Tombland Fair. The Tombland Fair, that was where it was all happening. On August the 7th, a group of priory men left the cathedral grounds and apparently they robbed a local merchant. Oh my God. So following that robbery, they then entered a local tavern, drank lots of wine and would you believe they actually refused to pay for it? I can well believe that. Yeah. Now the innkeeper, powerless to do anything then watched as the now-drunk priory men turned over barrels of beer, laughing and jeering at the poor man, before stumbling back to the cathedral cloisters in a rotten, drunken stupor. Now, as you can well imagine, word got out of that terrible behaviour, and, well, the bishop discovered what had gone on, and fearing reprisals, he ordered the gates to the cathedral grounds to be closed and locked. Sounds like it's a very, very good idea. Mm. Well, Jules, it so happens that his fear was well grounded, as the next day a group of young city men, upon hearing about this robbery and the incident at the tavern, decided to attempt to force their way into the cathedral grounds. Thwarted by the locked gates, they came up with a different plan. Mm -hmm. Climbing to the top of St George's Church, they fired incendiary arrows into the cathedral grounds. Now, some of these arrows landed on the thatched rooftops of buildings inside the grounds, and soon a number of fires had taken hold. As the monks and their servants tried to extinguish the flames, a young woman set a fire against the cathedral gates. Uh-oh. This fire weakened the bolts holding the gates shut, and the gates began to sag. A mob of city folk charged at the gates, using tables taken from the local taverns to batter the gates down. Once inside the grounds, the mob ran riot. They stole gold and silver, set more of the buildings alight, including the church of St Ethelbert. A number of monks apparently were killed trying to stop the mob. After things had calmed down, the bishop contacted Rome and Pope Gregory X issued a papal bull, commanding the city authorities to punish those involved. He also decreed that the entire city of Norwich was to be excommunicated from the church. Thirty citizens were condemned to death, some hanged and others dragged behind horses through the streets of Norwich until they died. My goodness, what a commotion. Well, the woman who, as you remember, had set fire to the gate was identified. Her fate was to be tied to the stake in the cathedral grounds and, you've guessed it, burnt to death. Now, this was to happen in front of a horrified crowd. 
a fitting punishment for the fire she had set against the gate that had enabled the mob to enter the cathedral grounds. So, Nige, hmm. could our mysterious drifting female figure be an echo of the woman burnt to death in the cathedral grounds? What do you think? Forever trapped in the place of her death, the penance she pays for burning the gate and letting the mob in. Sounds like that could be very possible. Nige, you know what? There are so many tales attached to this site. You know, we have a ghostly knight returning to toast his fallen friend, or maybe the spirit of an executed priest with a swollen red face and his entrails hanging out. If we told you all the tales, well, we'd be here all night, wouldn't we? We would indeed. We may, of course, return here. But for now, Jules, I think those stories are going to have to wait. We're now leaving the cathedral grounds. We're going through the Erpingham Gate. And as we look across Tombland, the rather rickety Augustine Stewart house catches our eye. Leaning over to the left, this comical-looking crooked house, however, has a gruesome tale contained within its ancient walls. It does indeed. So, time to take a wander across Tombland and walk through Tombland Alley. But keep your eyes open, guys, as you may well get a glimpse of a small female figure dressed in faded rags of grey, quietly drifting by. This is the Grey Girl, a well-known ghostly apparition with a rather gruesome tale to tell. Here we go, Nige. Here we go. Okay, now... Everyone, well, most people, love a royal visit. And in 1578, Norwich was blessed with such a visit from Elizabeth I. It was a big deal. She arrived with her entourage, but behind all the pageantry lurked a most unwelcome visitor. A gift, Nige, that nobody wanted. Now, the Queen had brought the plague with her. And the good citizens of Norwich were to pay a really horrible price. A really horrible price indeed, because between August 1578 and February 1579, 4,700 deaths were recorded. But this figure did not take into account every single plague death. The figure was more likely to be around double that amount. In a city with a population of around 16,000, that's quite a lot of bodies to dispose of. Norwich was no stranger to the plague, having succumbed to the ravages of the Black Death in 1349. The bodies piled high back then, and with so many people dying, it became impossible to individually bury the bodies. So hastily dug pits were used, and Tombland began to live up to its name, as pits were opened, and the grim task of bringing the bodies here for disposal began. Bring out you're dead. Oh, Nige, how gruesome! Well, we could go into details about the pits and their locations, but my goodness, we've got so many ghost stories to tell. So let's get back to our next scary tale. I think that's a very, very good idea. 
Now, with the death count rising, to try and stop the contagion, the decision was taken to leave the bodies in the houses and to seal the buildings shut. A large red cross was painted on the door, warning people to keep out. The pitmen would return later to take the bodies to the newly reopened plague pits and bury them. Gosh, that sounds so awful. It does indeed. Well, remember our crooked house? Well, that particular property is known as the Augustine Steward House, and in 1579 it was the home of an unfortunate family who fell victim to the plague. This is awful. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I'm rather enjoying this. The bailiffs came and sealed the house shut, leaving what they thought were the dead bodies of this poor family inside. After the set time had passed, the pitmen arrived to remove the bodies and to bury them in the reopened plague pits. As they dragged out the mother and father, they noticed some strange-looking wounds on the legs of the bodies. On closer inspection, the wounds were found to be bite marks, and there were missing chunks of flesh. These bite marks were too big to be the work of rats. They looked horribly like they were made by human teeth. Dragging out the other bodies, they find one body is a lot fresher than the others. The body of a young girl. Ooh, that's really horrible. It is, isn't it? In fact, Jules, the story goes that the pitmen opened her mouth and to their horror found it full of what looked like meat. So, had the poor girl choked on the flesh of her dead parents? It seems that way. In the haste to seal up the house, it appears that they had inadvertently sealed the poor girl inside, still alive. Imagine, Jules, the horror of being sealed inside a house with the dead family and then having to resort to eating their plague-ridden bodies to just survive. You just can't imagine it, can you? You can't imagine it at all. Well, it's not surprising to think that our drifting grey girl may be the ghost of this poor child, her restless soul condemned to wander the vicinity of her family home. The grey girl has been seen by occupants of the Augustine Stewart House and in quite a few of the adjacent buildings quietly drifting past, sometimes moving objects and opening doors on her travels. But you know what, Nige? She's also been spotted in St George's Church. Remember? Yeah, the same church that was used to fire the burning arrows from in our last story. Yes. Now, the Reverend John Mims recalls seeing this grey figure enter the church through the main doors, silently drifting across the back of the church and then leaving through the door leading to Tombland Alley. When we say leaving, well, she didn't actually open the door as it had been sealed up for many years. I love it. Well, it's time for us to leave as well, Jules, and make our way to another Norwich landmark. Okay, let's go. We're going to the imposing stone structure on a hill that broods menacingly over the streets of Norwich, keeping watch on the citizens below. Oh, yeah, we're heading for the castle. And guess what? What? There's more stories for us to tell. Yay! Here comes the history bit. Norwich Castle started life as a wooden structure on top of a mound. These early castles were called Mott and Bailey castles, built to subdue the local Anglo-Saxon population during the Norman Conquest. To build the mound and defensive earthworks, a number of Saxon houses were pulled down. 
showing how much disregard they had for their subjects, part of the castle was even built over a Saxon cemetery. Well, that's harsh. That is indeed. In 1094, work was started on a stone keep, finally finishing in 1121. Norwich Castle was designed to be a royal palace rather than a fortification. However, no kings or queens have ever lived in it. Standing idle, in 1345, the castle was converted into a prison, which was its main function for the next 500 years. It's a really fascinating place. It certainly is. And it was during its life as a prison that the more gruesome events took place. In the ditch around the castle, for example, prisoners were burnt to the stake. Robert Kett, the leader in a local rebellion, was held captive here and hung over the castle walls in a gibbet as a warning that rebellion was not such a grand idea. Public executions in the form of hangings took place between the two gatehouses and drew large crowds to witness this spectacle. Goodness, you know what? It's not surprising to hear that the castle and its grounds play host to a number of restless spirits then. Now these include the ghost of Martha Alden, executed here for murdering her husband. Her spirit still wanders through the castle art galleries and there is also the strange phantom in the castle grounds with nails through both of his ears. Do you know what? There's so many. There are so many. Ghosts, not ears. Indeed. But I've got a favourite. Oh yeah? Oh yeah. I rather like the floating skull that drifts around inside the castle keep. So, I think we're going to have a look at that little tale. Okay. Meet Robert Goodall, condemned to death for the murder of his unfaithful wife at Walsoken, Norfolk. Goodall was a 15-stone giant of a man who worked as a market gardener and farmer. Each day after work, he and his wife would travel into Wisbeach, where they would spend the night. On the 16th of September, he returned to the town alone, and his manner caused some suspicion amongst his friends. So, you can imagine how people felt when a search of Goodall's farm was carried out, and his wife's body was discovered at the bottom of a well. Her skull had been smashed with a very sharp instrument. Ouch. Goodall was put on trial and found guilty of a murder. He was executed on the 30th of November 1885 inside Norwich Castle. The hangman was James Berry of Bradford, but his calculations went awry. Goodall stood 5 foot 11 tall and was a heavy man of 15 stone with a weak neck. Berry considered that a drop of 5 foot 9 should be given. He used a government rope that had been used for the hanging of John Williams at Hereford a week earlier. On the day of the execution, the prisoner was led out to the gallows. Berry strapped Goodall's legs and applied the white hood and the noose. Goodall several times exclaimed, Oh God, receive my soul! As the church clock struck for the eighth time, Berry released the trap doors and Goodall disappeared into the pit. The official onlookers gasped with horror as the rope rebounded out of the trap door, swinging loose. As Berry and the prison surgeon looked under the staging of the scaffold, they saw Goodall's body lying there, with his decapitated head still wearing the execution hood beside it on the ground. That is really creepy. <laughs> it's really That's creepy horrible. indeed. Yeah. 
But still, this is the only occasion of a complete decapitation occurring at a hanging in England, Scotland and Wales. Although Berry, it seems, had several partial ones. Oh my God. Yeah. Of course, you can guess, so the story goes, it is said that the floating skull, one of your favourites... Indeed. ...is the restless spirit of poor Robert Goodall, doomed forever to search for his body. Blimey, Jules, after that horrible tale, I could murder a decent pint. Yeah. So let's go find a decent pub and have a drink or two. Sounds like a plan. I know a lovely place nearby. It's called the Lamb Inn, and it's not too far from the castle. Okay. Let's head down there now. Alrighty then. Okay, so guess what? It's my turn to do some history bits. Go ahead, it's going to make a welcome change. All right. So during the time of 1757, John Agis was the landlord of the Lamb Inn and enjoyed spending his time telling magical stories of mythical creatures to the local children. Now words spread about his stories and people started venturing from far and wide to listen to his wonderfully descriptive tales. Now his brother-in-law was a local chap called Timothy Hardy who was known for attracting trouble and spoiling for a fight. Hardy always carried a knife upon his person and claimed that if he ever left it behind he would be damned. On Saturday the 10th of November 1757 Hardy and his wife decided to visit the Lamb Inn and ventured down into the kitchen of the premises. John Agus then heard a commotion in the kitchen, lots of shouting and yelling, followed by his sister being pushed around aggressively by Hardy. Gosh, that sounds really awful. But then Hardy was known to be a violent man and often beat his wife, Agus's sister, repeatedly. Sounds like a really awful bloke. Yeah. In an effort to calm troubled waters and protect his sister, Agus ventured into the kitchen to stop the row between the couple. On hearing Agus approaching, Hardy then ceased his shouting and held out his hand to Agus, claiming that he did not wish to argue with him, but still had a beef with his sister. Mm. Now, Agus, not wanting to aggravate an already hostile environment, stepped forward and held out his hand in friendship. But you guessed it, Hardy's offer of friendship was not to be trusted. It wasn't indeed. Quick as a flash, he pulled out a knife and plunged it deeply into Agus's stomach ripping the knife three to four inches up his stomach, causing Agus bowels to spill out. Witnesses present described the horror of the brutal attack and advised that once Hardy had stabbed Agus, he shouted out at the top of his lungs, I have done for you and were my brother, John Hardy of Lynn. Here I would serve him the same, and now I'll stab myself, for I know... I must die for it. Hardy then made a feeble attempt at stabbing himself, failing miserably. The witnesses overpowered him and held him hostage until the police arrived. Despite the best efforts of the doctor who arrived alongside the police, poor John Agus writhed around in extreme agony for many hours, sadly dying the next morning. Hardy was immediately arrested and imprisoned at the castle until his trial by the Assizes. The trial occurred in the summer of the following year. He was sentenced to hang and for his body to be handed over for dissection. I know. Horrible. Following the murder of poor John Agus, his family made the decision to move away from the Lamb Inn as they found the location simply too distressing a place to remain. Almost after they left, however, 
strange happenings occurred in the Lamb Inn and have been witnessed ever since. Over to you, Jules. Yeah, for sure. There was knocking on bedroom doors and lonely footsteps walking down corridors. They've all been heard. But when they were immediately investigated, well, again, you've guessed it, nobody was there. At the scene of the murder, the kitchen, it is said that unwashed cutlery, if left out, is cleaned and put away by the next morning. You know what? I could do with a ghost like that, couldn't you? It's a useful ghost to have indeed. Indeed. But it is the children of later landlords and those who have stayed at the inn that have often told the story of an elderly gentleman being seen and making himself known to them. So he is said to perch on the foot of their bed and recount some rather spooky ghost stories. Even to this day, visitors to the inn have often asked the landlord who the gentleman is in the courtyard telling stories. But when the landlord ventures out to investigate, well, the old man's gone. How strange. Yeah, puff, gone, just like that. The elderly gentleman ghost has also been seen venturing upstairs in the inn, nodding and smiling at people whom he passes on the staircase. He was also seen in a room upstairs, walking through a door at the far end of the room. As guests felt it was polite to advise that they were leaving, they opened the door, only to discover that the door opened into an empty cupboard. Now Jules, what is interesting in this case, after some research, is the cupboard was a modern addition to the property, and the cupboard doorway actually originally led to another part of the inn. How interesting. How interesting indeed. There have been many sightings over the years of this elderly gentleman, but despite the encounters, the inn cameras failed to pick up any evidence of the ghostly gentleman. Despite the gruesome demise of John Agis, he clearly wanted to be remembered for his wonderful stories and is certainly not a man who wishes to appear on camera. Not like us then, eh? Not like us at all. (laughs) You just knew there was going to be a lovely story attached to the pub. You can always count on me to take you to the best places in town, Jules. Hmm. I'm guessing you would prefer to go somewhere uh, maybe a little less gruesome? Um, yes please, that would be nice. Okay, do you know anywhere? Uh, well, I kind of know a cosy little pub we can go for a nice quiet little drink. Cosy sounds good to me. Hmm. Okay, well, it'll finish off the Wanda perfectly. I think it's back down where we started our journey, um, right next door to the cathedral. Do you remember? I remember it well. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Well, so here we are at the Adam and Eve pub at last. A small, cute, but really rather lovely looking building. Do you know what, Jules? It's the oldest pub in Norwich. It dates back as far as 1249. The building was a home to a brew house that served out the workers of Norwich Cathedral who were paid in ale and bread for their work. Like all of our tales in this episode, there's history involved and in 1549, the Adam and Eve was a central point in an unfolding drama. Yes, I thought so. Do you remember Robert Kett? We mentioned him when we spoke about Norwich Castle. We did indeed. Okay. Now, from what I can remember, Kett led a rebellion against the Enclosure Act... Marching on Norwich with an army he had raised, Kett made camp on Mousehold Heath and then proceeded to raid into Norwich. 
the King sent Lord Sheffield from London to put down this upstart rebellion. On August 1st, 1549, Ket and Sheffield came face to face, just a mere hundred yards away from the Adam and Eve pub. Fighting broke out and hard pressed Lord Sheffield could see he was going to lose. So he decided to remove his helmet, hoping that by seeing his face, the rebels would take him prisoner for ransom. Unfortunately for Sheffield, his plan went horribly wrong. One of the rebels, a butcher called Fawkes, decided he wanted to take a famous scalp, and he slashed towards Lord Sheffield with his butcher's cleaver. Sheffield fell from his horse and lay there dying on the ground. Seeing their leader fall, the king's army fled the battlefield. Ket and his triumphant army returned to their camp at Mousehold. Later, some of the king's men returned to the battlefield and found Lord Sheffield still on the ground, barely alive. They took him to the nearby Adam and Eve, where they laid him on a table. And this is where the story ends. Mm, or does it? Because lots of strange things go on at the Adam and Eve today. People have felt someone tap on their shoulder, turning to find that there's no one there. And if you lay down small items like car keys or a cigarette lighter, you can leave them for just a few moments. Look, and they've just gone, only to reappear a few days later in the same spot. Barmaids have felt unseen fingers run through their hair, tankards swing on their own, and people have felt an icy chill pass right through them. Now the pub owners believe it's the ghost of Lord Sheffield playing tricks and making his presence felt. Not only does he haunt the pub, but he is reported to haunt the car park and the area where he was slain. As for our friend Robert Kett, well as you already know he was captured and met a gruesome end. We know he was hung on the castle wall. This was after being hung until he was almost dead, then coated in pitch a tar-like material, and placed in a gibbet. It is said that the birds would have pecked out his eyes long before he died. Oh. I know. Well, I had to end with something to make you go, Ugh. Yeah, so much for the nice, quiet drink, Nigel. I know. Mm. And that, ladies and gentlemen brings us to the end of our tales from our fine city. And it is a very fine city indeed. Well, we hope you have enjoyed the stories that we have shared with you tonight. If you decide to visit Norwich, our fine city, why not go to the same places and just see if you experience any of the ghosts that we mention? I know the place that we're going to now, mate. We're off down to the mulberry tree for a swift one. Nige. I think I've had enough of swift ones with you for one evening. Are you sure? <laughs> OK, well, there's just one thing for us to do then. OK, so Nigel's got his mind set on yet another pint in maybe a not-so-cosy pub. And with that, we will leave you, so please sleep well, folks. Don't have nightmares. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Good, Good night. night.